This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Most of us have a list of persons with whom we'd like, at some point, to have a conversation. On that list, my list, is Professor Alan Dershowitz of the Harvard Law School. He is indeed the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard. He's a graduate of Brooklyn College and the Yale Law School. Most of us know him as one of the most famous litigators in America. He just might be America's most prominent attorney. But he's also one of the nation's most honest thinkers. That's why I'm looking forward to a conversation with Professor Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz has been for many years professor of law at the Harvard Law School. He is also America's most famous attorney and one of America's most prominent public intellectuals. It's our honor today to have this conversation with Dr. Alan Dershowitz. Welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I have been reading your material for a long, long time. I think many Americans know you by your television appearances, and I think at least a couple of points, we've been on the same program, if not uh, at the same mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. But when I read you, I I read an argument made in the most honest and straightforward way that uh, that I think really calls for evangelical Christians, for instance, to 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 do some of our most uh, our most responsible thinking. In your book, Letters to a Young Lawyer, you argue that obedience to the God of the Bible can even be immoral. You, you say we should not be good because we fear divine punishment. In fact, you wrote this, in deciding what a course of action is moral, you should act as if there were no God. You should also act as if there were no threat of earthly punishment or reward. You should be a person of good character because it is right to be such a person. It appears to me that you may be one of those rare individuals who is, uh, who's actually not only arguing for a secular morality, but, uh, but willing to articulate how such a thing could happen. Well, certainly I do advocate a morality not based on fear, of punishment and the life thereafter, but but uh, morality based on doing the right thing, doing right because it is the right thing. The great Jewish philosopher Maimonides said um, the the opposite of the of the uh, kind of uh, deal that you often hear: act because you'll be you'll be rewarded, or don't act because you fear punishment. Uh, Maimonides said that if you act out of uh, just fear of punishment, it's not uh, truly moral. It's just a cost-benefit calculus. And so you should do the right thing because it's the right thing. And uh, the, the theory, this story about acting as if there is no God actually comes from a Hasidic rabbi who was asked by his students uh, once, can you say something good about atheists? And the rabbi paused for a moment and said, yes, there's a moment in everyone's life that they should act as if they were atheists, act as if there was no God. If you see a poor person on the street begging for for bread, don't think God will save that person. Act as if you're the only being in the universe that could save that person and give that person bread because it's the right thing to do. Now, when you speak about a secular morality, I, I just have to tell you, I think most evangelical Christians are going are, are just going to shake their head and wonder, how in the world can you have any stable notion of right and wrong on the basis of, uh, of mere secular reason? Now, you actually answer that in your own way. Well, I try to. It's not perfect. Uh, I think we grope toward uh, reason and we grope toward morality. Uh, those of us who believe that we don't come with an instruction book, with a manual of how to do it, that we have to figure out for ourselves what's right and and what's wrong, have a much more difficult time. I was brought up as an Orthodox Jew. I went to Yeshiva, Jewish elementary school, Yeshiva high school. Uh, My home was strictly Orthodox. Uh, In many ways, life was simple. There were a series of do's and don'ts. Uh, Some of them were moral in nature. Uh, Don't ever hurt anybody. Always uh, speak up for those who are without uh, an opportunity to speak for themselves. Some of them were just ritualistic. Don't eat anything that isn't uh, kosher. Uh, don't uh, drive your car on the Sabbath. Uh, but I was very rule-bound, and, and life was rather uh, simple. Um, when I became an adult, it became much more complicated uh, for me. Uh, I, I didn't see the rule book as guiding my life, I saw experiences guiding my life. I was a child uh, of the Holocaust era, 
that had a profound influence on my judgment of humanity, on my career decision to become a lawyer for the oppressed and the underdog. Uh, so for me, uh, rights uh, come not from uh, divine commands, but from experience. And morality grows out of experience. And we struggle with it. It's not simple. And we make mistakes. And I agree with the evangelicals who say that without the Word of God, um, it's hard to have absolutes. Uh, and uh, we fall into the risk of morality coming from the Stalins and the Hitlers and the, and the horrible people of the world, the Ahmadinejads uh, today. Uh, that's a risky endeavor, but I think the human experience on earth is in fact a, ris a risky endeavor, and we should uh, welcome the challenge that uh, life without an instruction book uh, gives us. There's a lot of discussion out there about justice, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. The philosophers such as Dworkin, uh, Michael Sandel, and others who have written best-selling books, uh, whether right. they're read or not, at least Americans know they're important books that, that, ought, to be, that ought to be read. Uh, but I have to tell you that if I were going to try the experiment of doing what you suggested that the rabbi had instructed, mm -hmm. and that is to try to think like an atheist. Mm -hmm. I, I'll just have to tell you that I think I would find the most compelling moral argument to be that that you present in your book, Rights from Wrongs, a Secular Theory, the Origins of Rights. And you just spoke about the, the absence of absolutes. And I think you're very honest in that book to suggest that we really do learn most from a secular perspective uh, of what we need to know about the rights that have to be honored and, and preserved from the, the experience of horrible moral evil. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a believing person, you believe that God put evil on the earth in order to teach us lessons. Um, and I love the Bible, for example. I read the Bible all the time. I read the Jewish Bible. I read the Christian Bible. I learn a tremendous amount from it. I read it as a human being, as a secular person. I draw lessons uh, from it. Um, and whoever the authors of the Bible are, whether it was God himself or Moses or, or in the case of the New Testament, obviously, uh, those who, who, who wrote it, um, they were brilliant. And uh, to, to, to teach law, for example, without reference to the Bible is absurd. Uh, it would be like teaching law without reference to the United States Constitution. We need to know the Bible, um, whether you're a secular person or a non-secular uh, person, whether you believe the Bible is the Word of God or the Word of inspired human beings, uh, to live in the world today without reference uh, to the Bible is to blink reality. I was watching somebody on television the other day, uh, the president of the Atheist Society, and even he said he gave his daughter a Bible to read. Jefferson gave his nephew a Bible to read and said, read it like you would read a history book. Read it critically. Uh, that's the way I read the Bible, and I get an enormous amount uh, out of it. And I do think that if God put evil on the earth for a reason, he did it to teach us lessons about how to avoid the recurrence of evil. Now, I can't justify horrible evils like slavery or oppression of women or the Holocaust uh, in any way as a means toward an end, but uh, the effect of those horrible evils have been to make us far more sensitive to the need to have rights and moral systems designed to prevent the recurrence of those evils. Now, when you write about uh, this this method of trying to determine human rights and uh, you look at the experience just of the 20th century, I, I just want to ask you straightforwardly, do you think the human beings are making moral progress you know, just over time? No, I don't. Uh, I think it's been an up-and-down situation. I think the 20th century is perhaps the most complicated, convoluted century in the history of the world, perhaps because I lived in it, but it had the worst evil. I mean, Hitler's evil and Stalin's evil are unmatched in their magnitude uh, in the world. Uh, Pol Pot uh, genocide in, in Cambodia. It was the century of genocide. Uh, on the other hand, it was the century in which we really ended discrimination based on race and based on gender. Uh, we made tremendous scientific progress. Um, I think a lot of people came back to religion. America is a very religious country, far more than Western Europe, and that is really a 20th century phenomenon in many respects. So I think the 20th century has really proved 
that progress doesn't operate in a linear way, uh, that evolution, moral evolution, is a metaphor. We don't evolve morally. We don't get better morally as time uh, passes. You know, I think if we studied any particular century in great detail, we would see ups and downs in the 19th century as well. It was the century of slavery. It was the century of the end of slavery. It was the century in which America uh, became great. It was the century in which America suffered greatly. So um, uh, human beings are not on a linear track toward greater morality. And those evolutionists who think that somehow evolution is purposefully leading us toward better human beings, I think, have been proved wrong by history. So would it be fair to say that you would oppose intellectually both uh, the claim to theological certainty and the claim of, uh, of liberal triumphalism? Absolutely. I am a skeptic. I am a skeptic of religion. I'm a skeptic of science. I don't think science has all the answers. I, I love to give the perfect example of how the Supreme Court, uh, in an 8-to-1 decision, validated um, mandatory sterilization of people who were allegedly reproducing inferior stock. And the only dissenter was a religious Catholic who said, I can't abide this notion. It just doesn't fit with my teachings of the church. And he was the only dissenter. And of course, history has proved him 100% right. All the fancy scientists at Harvard who thought that eugenics was the future and didn't anticipate how Hitler would use eugenics to produce the, quote, superior race, religion triumphed over science in that respect, then for me as a skeptic of everything, I want to see religion serve as a check on science. I want to see science serve as a check on religion, just the way the legislature serves on a check on the executive. I want to see churches serve as checks on political figures, and I want to see political figures serve as checks on church leaders. So I want to live in a society in which there's a process of checking, in which there is never certainty about anything and that we die as uncertain as we were born because nobody gave us all the answers. And for those who think the answers will come in the world to come, God bless them. I hope they're right. For those of us who want to live our lives completely here on earth because we have doubts about any world to come, we too have to be skeptical and uncertain about everything. By the way, the greatest religious leaders have always been skeptics. Jesus was a great skeptic. He challenged the Pharisees. He challenged the Jewish religious establishment. Luther challenged the establishment of the church. Even Mohammed challenged the, the status quo. So I think skepticism is a virtue not only among secularists, but among uh, deeply religious people as well. Now, back in 2007, you wrote a book entitled Blasphemy, How the Religious Right is Hijacking Our Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. D do you see a threat to the American civil order coming from conservative Christians? Well, I see it as part of our system of checks and balances. Again, I would not want to live in a completely secular society. I wouldn't want to live in a society dominated by Benthamite pragmatism, nor would I want to live in a society completely dominated by Kantian imperatives, or religious imperatives, or secular imperatives. I want to see both. I want to see a challenge uh, to, to each. What I worry about by some is that they see the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which was called the Godless Constitution when it was enacted, because it was the first Constitution not to refer to God. Uh, but uh, I, I worry that they are, are trying to engage in a hegemony. They're trying to say that you can only be a true American if you uh, believe, and then some would say, and if you believe in a particular way and in a particular God and a particular approach to God, and I fear that. I don't think they're winning. Um, I think Americans would always be skeptical of breaking down the wall of separation between church and state, a wall built, by the way, to protect the church, not the state. Um, the formulator of that term is not Jefferson. It was really Roger Williams and others around that period of time who talked about the garden and the wilderness, the garden being the church and the wilderness being secular society and government, and wanted a high wall created between the garden and the wilderness to make sure that the state doesn't dominate the church, the church doesn't dominate the state, which is what happened in Europe. The reason Western Europe is called a post-Christian society 
And when I go, whenever I go to France, for example, I love to go to Notre Dame. It's one of the most glorious buildings in the world, or Chartres. And I love to go while services are going on because I like to see Christian services or Jewish services. I like to participate in it. When I go to Notre Dame, I see you know 25 Jews, a few American tourists, and almost no Christians uh, in the church because the churches of Europe are empty. And one of the reasons is because for centuries the church and the state were merged. And when the French Revolution came about, for example, the opposition to the state became the opposition to the church. Whereas uh, in in America, uh, that doesn't happen. You can love your church and be critical of the state or love the state and be critical of the church. Keeping them separate is, I think, good for the church and good for the state and certainly good for America. When I read that book, I have to tell you, I, I agreed in part and disagreed in part. And uh, good. The, the, good. The, the disagreement that's the way it should be. Yeah, well, and that's part of the reason why I enjoyed it and, and certainly look forward to this conversation. To, I think the part that, that I thought might be missing here is, for instance, what Peter Berger at Boston University talks about in terms of plausibility structures. It's not just about what the founders did or didn't believe, but about the worldview that made the world make sense to them. And I think that's where the Judeo-Christian heritage is, uh, well, absent. It doesn't doesn't leave the worldview that produced this American experiment. Mm -hmm. However... Well, now, I I don't disagree with that. I think that all the founders assumed the existence of God, and they assumed the Judeo-Christian a tradition. There was a real disagreement about the Bible. Uh, Jefferson uh, was not a fan of either the Old uh, Testament, the Jewish Bible, or the, the Christian Bible. He wrote his own Bible, as you know, called the Jefferson Bible, in which he, he loved Jesus, in which he simply left the words of Jesus, the elegant words of Jesus, uh, but kept out the miracles, because he didn't approve of of, uh, of of those parts of the of the Bible. So he picked picked and chose what parts of the Bible he liked. Uh, Washington generally was not a churchgoer, but he admired his wife for going to church. In fact, the statistics showed that at the time of Washington and Jefferson, 80% of churchgoers in America were women. Um, And the men, many of whom were frontiersmen, uh, tended to stay away from church. Of course, then we had the Great Awakening, and many Americans went back to church. So, you know, we've had periods, ups and downs of the popularity of particular churches, Uh, It's, again, a work in progress, and uh, uh, what I didn't want is to see the Declaration of Independence interpreted, misinterpreted, as a document based on the Bible. It was based on religion, but in those days, the debate was not atheist or agnostic. In fact, the word agnostic hadn't even been invented, and there were no atheists, basically, in America. The issue was whether or not the Christian religion, as reflected by the Christian Bible should become the basis for America. And there, there was very, very significant uh, disagreement about that. Well, in your book, the first portion of it, and, and that's reflected also in your book, uh, America Declares Independence, you, you really want to set the record straight. And, and a lot of those issues are contentious, but I just want to tell you something that might surprise you somewhat, or at least mm-hmm. let you know there are some interesting arguments out there that might parallel yours from a different reason. You're concerned that conservative Christians want to claim these founding fathers because they want to claim their authority uh, in in order to establish uh, a kind of historical precedent that would lead to current policy issues. I just want to tell you that I'm a Christian theologian, and uh, and I share many of your concerns, but for a very different reason. I think these people fall far short of Christian orthodoxy, and so I'm theologically offended to have them classified as Christians when, when in the case of someone like Jefferson— he is profoundly not. So yeah. we're in agreement yeah, no, I there. I think that's right. I think that's right. And Jefferson, you know, he's one of my heroes, but he's a very deeply flawed hero. Um, he's one of my heroes on issues of freedom of speech and on other uh, civic issues, but his personal life was abominable. I mean, he's the only founder who didn't even free his slaves, except for the ones he had personal and sexual relationships with. He didn't free his slaves even upon his death. Uh, he kept increasing uh, his slaves and selling off some in order to buy wine and to increase his library. He was a hedonist uh, who put the value of his pleasure over the freedom of his slaves and the hypocrisy of writing all men are created equal on a desk that was built for him by a slave, um, you know, in some ways manifests the, the complexity. So, you know, if I were a, a, a deeply religious Christian, I don't think I'd claim uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. 
uh, or some of the others, Benjamin Franklin, who, who lived a life of hedonism as well. So it's a mixed picture, as most pictures are, and I reject those who would try to clean up the picture, whether it's Stalin who took people out of the photographs when he was rewriting history, or some people today who tried to turn Thomas Jefferson into uh, a church-going, Bible-reading Christian, which he was not. Well, all of that was really interesting. On the one hand, I wonder if this conversation is a bit different in tone, at least, than many of Professor Dershowitz's writings. But maybe that's the way it is with just about all of us. There's a context for our conversation, and there's a context for the kind of argument that is printed in a book. There's the kind of argument that takes place in the give and take of, of a television news interview or talk show. And there's the kind of conversation that takes place with two people over a cup of coffee. The kind of conversation we just had is one that reveals some nuances as well as some very clear and distinct thinking by one of America's most honest thinkers. Professor Dershowitz, I have to tell you, one of the most fascinating things I've ever read by your pen is an essay that appeared in the Harvard Law Review entitled Rights in a World Without God. It has to do with the, uh, with the review's consideration of the 50th anniversary of uh, something put forth by Lon Fuller entitled The Spelunkian <laughs> yeah, Explorers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes the most important moral discussions take place in that kind of hypothetical situation. Can you play that out just a little bit for us? <laughs> I think you're probably the only person who ever read that obscure article in the Harvard Law Review. It was the 50th anniversary of a brilliant hypothetical case written by my colleague, my late colleague, Lon Fuller, who was a great jurisprudence uh, theorist. It was about people who were trapped in an uh, underground cave, and they had no way of getting out, and they were going to die uh, without food. And the only way to save themselves was to choose among them and eat one of them until the rescuers managed to break them free. So the issue was, is it appropriate to kill and eat one innocent human being in order to save the lives of a multiple number of innocent human beings. And Lon Fuller set out a series of six or seven hypothetical arguments by judges uh, uh, for and against uh, prosecuting these people after they did the terrible deed of killing and eating uh, somebody. By the way, it's based on a real case, on a series of real cases. Um, and uh, so I was asked, with along with a number of other contemporary scholars, to 50 years later act as if we were the judges and write our own opinions. And so I decided to call myself Justice Debunker and became the skeptic, the religious skeptic, and and wrote an opinion from the point of view of somebody living a few thousand years from now in the post-religious era. And it was fun to do. And uh, um, uh, it was an interesting exercise of how law would look uh, without God as a foundational element of our legal system. Well, it may surprise you to know I've actually assigned theology students to read that essay. So, oh, it, it, thank you so you, much. You it sometimes really makes a writer feel good. You sometimes just, have, you have know, an influence you, sit, you don't you sit know, alone, <laughs> and you never know if anybody's going to read what you're going to write, and then you find out that it's been assigned. That's fantastic. If you ever want me to do a little uh, telephone interplay with your students to discuss it, sometimes when you're teaching the class, I'd be happy to do that. Well, I guarantee you, I'm going to take you up on that. Please, yeah. Now, that was done in a conversational uh, kind of situation in the way you wrote it, uh, in, in a hypothetical, uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of, of, of a justice's opinion set down. And we've just, mm-hmm. we've just talked about it, but there's not a clear and present danger that, that we really fear out of that right now. On mm-hmm. this issue of terrorism, it's exactly the opposite. Exactly. And uh, you're understanding of terrorism is one of the most bracing and morally serious that I've ever encountered. And, and I, I think it would be very helpful if, if you go back to 1968 and answer the question that you ask, why does terrorism work? Mm-hmm. Well, why terrorism works, it's because it's rewarded. Um, it's rewarded all the time around us. Um, we see that those who have engaged in terrorism, if it's rational terrorism, uh, it generally produces results. They get their hostages back. They get governments to change their policies. Palestinians will probably get a state. 
um, after having used terrorism extensively, starting in the 1960s and even before. It goes back to 1929, whereas the Tibetans will not get a state, and the, the Kurds probably won't get a state, and the Chechens probably won't get a state. But the Palestinians will, and largely because they brought their situation to the attention of the world through terrorism. Now, the kind of terrorism that doesn't work is Osama bin Laden's terrorism, because it was purposeless. He didn't say, I will blow you up unless you do X. He said, I will blow you up because you're evil, and there's nothing you can do to make yourself unevil. You have to all become Muslims, otherwise I'm going to blow you up. That will never work, because there's no ask, and there's no give. Uh, the only way to deal with terrorism like that is to stop it, as the United States successfully uh, did in the in the killing of bin Laden. But uh, we claim we don't negotiate with terrorists, but we always do. And in the end, um, the message to the terrorists is keep it up. It's an effective tactic for bringing your plight to the attention of the world, and you get what you want ultimately. So I think we've approached the problem of terrorism uh, all wrong. Now, I want to trace that out a little bit, because you especially uh, indict Europe for being soft on this issue and for inciting terrorism and encouraging it. Back in 1968, the uh, the Palestinians learned that they could further their cause. And as you point out, the moral calculus is whether they win or whether they die, uh, they succeed. Yeah. And um, I think uh, it, it has come back to haunt the uh, Europeans because they are now victims of terrorism. Uh, the Spanish were among the worst uh, in terms of giving in to terrorism. And, of course, they had the terrible events uh, in, the, in, the, in their train station, which killed so many. Uh, the British freed terrorists, uh, and they had their subway uh, terrorism. Uh, the Russians have had terrorism. The only country that may have benefited, perhaps, at the moment, who knows what will happen, is Germany. Germany was among the worst in terms of giving in to terrorism. They uh, freed the terrorists who killed the Israeli athletes at the Olympics. Uh, they didn't do much to stop that act of terrorism, and they have not been uh, victimized by terrorism uh, uh, for the most part, although the 9-11 people planned their terrorist acts in uh, Germany, and Germany was a central place for uh, terrorist activities. So countries make deals with the devil, and they make calculations. Uh, Italy has done the same. Virtually every country uh, has made pacts with terrorists in order to selfishly protect themselves while exposing others to or even incentivizing terrorism against other countries. So, again, I think the policy has not been uh, the right uh, policy, and I think it would be a, a wrong thing to reward Palestinian terrorism by giving them everything they want, and the more terrorism they engage in, or the more threats of terrorism they engage in, uh, the more they get out of it. And, um, you know, even today, threats against Americans uh, for promoting freedom of speech, if we are critical of Islam, the fear is that we will be victims of, of terrorism. And, and a great country can't submit to that kind of moral blackmail. So morally and legally, or, or politically, what would you have America to do? Well, I think America has to have a strong stand against terrorism. I think the way we dealt with Osama bin Laden was absolutely uh, correct. Um, I actually would have preferred if he had been captured and put on trial and shown to the world to be what he was, um, much the way Eichmann was put on trial by, by Israel rather than just killed. Uh, but uh, he has been disabled and no longer can be the leader of al-Qaeda. I think you have to deal with terrorism um, by by fair, firm um, actions rather than by giving in to the demands of the terrorists. Now, there are going to be some extreme situations, inevitably, where moral considerations conflict and uh, uh, where some degree of, 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 of uh, compromise probably is in order. But for the most part, the policy ought to be that we do not reward terrorism. Now, in terms of the, the big moral issues, uh, you've called for a, a, an attempt, a, a brave attempt, an honest attempt to, to forge some kind of, of secular morality and a secular grounding of human rights. Uh, but that leads me to ask a, a couple of other questions that, that relate to the larger issue of secularization, which, which you basically see as a good thing in, in terms of no, everything that no, can No, no, no. 
I'm not in favor of secularization. Let me be very clear about that. I don't think a society that was a totally secular society would be a good thing. I think that secularism should not be prevented. I think it should not be demonized. I think I think very religious people have to learn to live with secularists, just as secularists have to learn to live with religious people. I would not want to live in a country that was either or. I experienced the Soviet Union during the bad times. I represented many dissidents. That was a secular tyranny. I wouldn't want that. Um, and I saw that religion played a very important role in checking some of the abuses of the secular society. So I don't want to live in a secular society. I want to live in a society where secularism competes with religion. Well, then, uh, just tell me to understand. Then, then the the positive contribution that you see religion making is, is separate from any theistic claim. Is it is it a mode of moral reasoning? Is is it a community of moral meaning? Help me to understand how you think uh, that religious uh, communities and religious believers can can play a helpful role then in checking the power of evil. Well, in a lot of ways. First of all, I don't know what the truth is. I am not an atheist. Um, I am a skeptic. So the religious folks may have it right, we may have it wrong. I would love to wake up after I died and be greeted by a God who said to me, uh, gee, uh, you know, you know, you were wrong. Uh, I admire your fortitude and your intellectual willingness to look at all sides of the issue, but in the end you were wrong. Nothing could make me happier than to find out that I was wrong and there was an, an afterlife, whether I benefited or was hurt uh, uh, by it. I'd, I'd love the intellectual challenge of knowing I was wrong. So I think one thing is that religious folks give us a worldview that might be right in the end. I, I'm not there to say that, that, that it's not. But it's not. it should never be a worldview that uh, is the exclusive uh, one. Also, modes of reasoning have traditionally grown out of religious thinking. Some of the greatest thinkers in the world have been uh, religious, obviously, when you think of Aquinas and, and Martin Luther, when you think of Maimonides, when you think of some of the greatest thinkers of the world, they have uh, been religiously based. It was true at a time that uh, that uh, theology was the queen of, of all sciences. I don't think that you can give anybody a queenship or a kingship today, but uh, it's very important to have a religious worldview competing with the secular worldview and challenging it at all terms. Now, as a Christian theologian, I'm very concerned about the uh, the, the the fate of of theism and of uh, of theistic claims and and communities uh, in in a modern world in in modernity or postmodernity or whatever we're going to call it. And, and thus, when I picked up your book, The Vanishing American Jew, I, I, I looked at it, reading it as a Christian, thinking about parallel challenges that, that, that we face. But, but you're pretty honest in there about, uh, about your concerns about the future of Judaism uh, as a people. You speak especially about the United States, but, but with larger international application as well. There's no question about that, and I worry because, you know, Judaism is a little different than, uh, say, Catholicism. Catholicism is purely a religion. Um, Judaism is a civilization, it's a culture, it's a nationality uh, through Israel, it's a way of life, um, and I would hate to see that disappear because it's contributed so much to the world uh, in 4,000 years, uh, you know, beginning with the Bible and going through Einstein and so many scientists and so much. It would be a shame to see a world without Jews uh, or without Jewish life. It would also be a terrible shame to see a world without Christianity, without Islam. Uh, and I would hope we never get to that uh, position. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, uh, it worries me, because I think Europe, post-Christian Europe, is also post-Jewish Europe in many ways. And I think Europe is poorer for its total abandonment of any um, uh, interplay with religion. I mean, there's, there's, in the United States... There's constant, even though I'm secular, I'm constantly interacting with religion. I think about God all the time as a skeptic. In Europe, it's off the table. It's off the agenda. It's not in people's minds. And I think Europe is poorer for it. I think we see it in a lot of different ways, uh, whether it be uh, French attitudes toward uh, sex, which have come up recently in uh, prominent cases, or a kind of uh, kind of 
agnosticism about life, not only about religion, but about virtue and values. And so I think the presence of a religious tradition in a country is an, makes an important contribution to thinking hard about ultimate issues, which is the most, which are the most important issues to think about. Thinking hard about those kinds of issues leads me to a, a question that's drawn not so much from the, uh, the, the kind of academic discussion or even the context of litigation, but rather international relations. President Barack Obama recently uh, set forth uh, his plan for uh, the achievement of a stable Middle East peace. And in it, he, for instance, called for Israel to return to the 1967 boundaries, to use the language the president employed. Uh, I know, as a, a friend of Israel, you have to have a strong opinion about that. I do. Uh, the 67 borders were invitations to war. And, of course, they produced one war after the other. And why you would return to artificial borders that uh, make Israel vulnerable to attack it would make a Ben-Gurion airport three miles away from Palestinian rockets and uh, make Israel have only nine miles in width at its narrowest point. Nobody seriously is considering returning to the 67 of borders. Now, the president did say with land swaps, but you shouldn't need land swaps for Israel to preserve the Western Wall, the holiest point of Judaism, the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, which has been continuously uh, in Jewish hands since uh, 3,000 years ago. Um, the access wrote to the Hebrew University and the Hadassah Hospital. Those are part of Israel, even though they were captured in a defensive war, captured back in a defensive war in 67. When it comes to some of the settlements, yeah, land swaps make sense, but the Palestinians have to give up something in return, and they have to give up their alleged right of return, bringing back uh, or bringing four million great-grandchildren, nephews, nieces of people who left uh, as a result of the war started by the Arab states in 1947, 48, and 49. So I thought it was a one-sided presentation. I thought it also made it harder for the Palestinians to negotiate because President Obama basically gave the Palestinians what they wanted, namely a return to 67 borders without requiring the Palestinians to give up what they need to give up, and that is the right of return. They have to recognize Israel as the nation-state of the Jewish people. They have to renounce violence, uh, do all of those things. And you can't have a unilateral peace. Israel tried that with Gaza, and it didn't work. They just gave the Gaza up, and 10,000 Jews had to leave Gaza. What did they get in return? 10,000 rockets. Most recently, an anti-tank missile aimed at a school bus that had 46 students in it. Fortunately, they were discharged minutes before, and only one student was killed. Only one student. Oh, my God, I can't even say that. One yes. young person was killed because the Palestinian Hamas aimed rockets deliberately to maximize the killing of schoolchildren, and they justify it to this day. And so you can't make peace with Hamas. Hamas is the kind of terrorist organization that has to be dealt with the way the United States dealt with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. But when Israel dealt with Hamas that way and uh, targeted for assassination, its military leaders, it was criticized by many around the world who praised the United States when it did the same thing. So we see the double standard is alive and well and used against the Jewish state very often throughout the world. Now, well, how does that play out in the modern American university? I won't even speak about Europe, but, but one of the things you've been very brave to address is, uh, is the lack of free speech, is the lack of respect for, uh, for a pluralism of ideas. And, and, and frankly, you, you've indicted many of the leading educational institutions of this country with a, a, a very blatant anti-Semitism. Well, the University of California, which has a significant number of Jewish students, has not protected the free speech of uh, Jewish kids who are pro-Israel. Uh, uh, most recently, of course, we know that the University of California at Irvine, uh, that uh, Michael Oren, who's a very moderate academic Israeli ambassador to the United States, was invited to speak at the university. And a group of Muslim students uh, decided to shut him down, decided to not allow him to speak. And um, fortunately, after many disruptions, they were finally removed from the audience, and he was allowed to continue his speech. But when the prosecutor decided to prosecute these uh, people who were trying to censor uh, a speaker, um, many people came to the defense, including the American Civil Liberties Union, came to the defense of these censors. I, you know, I've been an active member of the ACLU for nearly half a century. It's the first time I remember the ACLU defending censorship and coming to the support of people 
whose goal it was to prevent a speaker from speaking and to prevent audiences from listening. They never would have done this had the shoe been on the other foot. Had there been Jewish disruptors or evangelical Christian disruptors trying to prevent a Hamas speaker from speaking on campus, they never would have come to the defense of the censors. They would have come to the defense of the speaker. But the ACLU made the terrible mistake uh, of coming to the defense of the censors in this case. One final question. I just have to ask you this. Uh, you are so well known as a litigator. And, uh, well, to mention litigation is to bring on the, the questions of moral meaning. But I think many, many people just watching the way that the law works would want to ask you, given your prominence not only as a professor but also in the courtroom, what is the obligation of a lawyer to the truth? Well, it's interesting. The lawyer's obligation is to the process of truth-finding. And the process of truth-finding under the American legal system is adversarial. Uh, Through our experience, we have learned that the best way to produce the ultimate truth is to have people assigned uh, to represent uh, different points of view. The same way when the Catholic Church makes somebody a saint, they appoint a devil's advocate in order to bring all the worst allegations you can imagine against this candidate for sainthood. Uh, The Sanhedrin, the the Jewish uh, court back in the Talmudic period, when there was a unanimous decision to impose the death penalty, they wouldn't impose it because they said, if nobody spoke for the defendant, all sides weren't heard. So we've made a commitment under our Constitution that the best way to truth is to have defense attorneys vigorously defend their clients, whether or not their clients did it. As a lawyer, I would never get up in front of a jury and say, my client didn't do it if I thought he did do it. But I would challenge the government's evidence and say you have to think hard about whether or not the confession was improperly uh, obtained. You have to think hard about whether or not the eyewitness uh, was able to see or whether or not the other witness was paid for his testimony. So truth is a process, and lawyers are committed to that process, but they do it in a way that's often misunderstood. Look, Christian uh, uh, priests and ministers also are committed to truth, but they can't reveal what was told to them in confidence, even if that would mean that the truth doesn't come out, because what we do is create processes, and the processes sometimes require that an individual playing a particular role play that role vigorously in order to help the process that ultimately produces truth. So yes, we are committed to truth, but we sometimes have to defend falsehood in order to promote a process of truth. If you were to speak to American evangelicals and say, here is one thing uh, that you're simply not thinking about, you're not looking at, you're not taking into consideration, and you should, what would that be? That would be that uh, uh, there are many Americans who are deeply, deeply moral and, and who want to be moral, but can't find it in their hearts to believe in God or can't find it in their hearts to believe in Christianity. Be generous uh, to them. Uh, understand that they, too, are searching for truth, an ultimate truth. Don't uh, denigrate them. Uh, don't insult them. Don't claim that you can't have morality without uh, God or without Christianity. Uh, respect the rights of others to search for ultimate truths in their own way. Uh, I think we have a better society when we each uh, tolerate the other. I would say the same thing about atheists. Don't uh, demonize religion or religious people. They are searching for their truth in a different way from you. Honor them. They should honor you. That's, I think, the American way. Professor Dershowitz, it's been an honor to have this conversation. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor for me. Well, that was about as wide-ranging a conversation as two human beings can have moving from hypothetical cannibalism all the way to the latest events in the Middle East. Talking about issues of morality that might be debated in a more academic context and the very real and present danger of terrorism. That's what makes a conversation like this so interesting. It's certainly true that we learn a great deal from people who agree with us. We often learn a great deal from those with whom we share a basic worldview. Our arguments are sharpened, our understanding is deepened, our interests are quickened when we read those who exhilarate us by agreement. But at times, we might just learn even more keenly, if more urgently, when we encounter those with whom we disagree. 
it just might be also that our arguments are actually more sharp when they are rubbing up against those with whom we disagree. It just might be that when we are in a conversation with someone that comes from a very different worldview, we have to think a, a bit more actively, and shall we say it, a bit more honestly than we might be tempted to do if we're just talking to ourselves. I think all that's in the background of my reflections about the conversation with Professor Alan Dershowitz. I'll be very honest. I do not share his confidence that there can be a genuine secular morality. I am reassured, however, by the fact that he is so serious and honest in his efforts to try to to negotiate one, to create one, and to be honest about what kind of moral reasoning would be required to achieve such an understanding. I'm very thankful for the fact that he is very honest about suggesting that the best that can come out of this is a a set of general moral understandings. When he writes about human rights coming from the context of moral reasoning in his book, Rights from Wrongs, he's very honest about the fact that it really doesn't produce a system of moral absolutes, but rather a, a set of moral principles that should be respected by virtually all people in virtually all settings. The danger is, I think, that there are circumstances in which people are very prone to act in ways that are deeply immoral if there is the absence of such absolutes. And if there is the forfeiting of even the possibility of knowing absolute truth in issues of morality or anything else. I find a conversation with Professor Alan Dershowitz to be bracing, whether I'm reading his books or hearing his voice, as in this conversation that we've just enjoyed. When I read his books, I find myself entering into a world in which a very honest mind is trying to think about the consequences of his basic presuppositions, but is also trying to deal with real-world issues, whether it be terrorism or the future of the state of Israel, or or what kind of liberties uh, must be balanced over against the very real needs for security in, in the modern state. I find myself interested in the kind of hypothetical arguments that he entertains as a lawyer, And I find myself deeply interested in in, in how he actually operates as not only a law professor, but as a litigator, given the fact that he has been involved in some of the most high-profile cases in American jurisprudence. But when you look at these issues and take them one by one, I think they all come back in many ways to one of the issues we discussed later in the conversation. When I read his book, The Vanishing American Jew, I was very much struck by his concern that low birth rates... Uh, and assimilation and intermarriage will likely mean the end of Jewishness, as we've understood that, at least in recent decades and centuries. I understand that here you have a Jewish man who declares himself to be basically a skeptic when it comes to the existence of God, who's very concerned about the non-existence of Jews. And one of the reasons I found that interesting is because I think there are many Christians who are almost tempted to think in the same terms. Cultural Christianity is in many ways well, reflected in the very kind of argument that Professor Dershowitz there encounters and and puts forth in his book, The Vanishing American Jew. But I also note that if you are going to embrace that kind of worldview, if you're going to see religious faith as basically something that adds a community of meaning, and and you'll hear very honestly what Professor Dershowitz said, a check over against the kind of Benthamite uh, Kantian reasoning that's all that remains, or, or perhaps you might say even the best that remains, Uh, in a purely secular intellectual context. So I appreciate that. But I also have to come back to say that I share so much with Professor Dershowitz in terms of what I understand to be his passions. A a passion, for instance, for his own people. A a, a passion for the state of Israel uh, when it comes uh, to to the fact that just moral reasoning uh, in any sane context requires us to appreciate the fact that the existence of Israel is very crucial for the existence of the Jews as a people. Now, there are many Christians who are going to tie that to specific Christian theological arguments, but the case can be made that the most important argument there is simply the fact that the existence of the Jewish people should be a prime concern of Christians, and it's hard to imagine how that can be treasured and, and be protected without the state of Israel. His warnings about the reality of terrorism include an intellectual honesty that just is missing in so many other conversations. This man is not a utopian. He's not a secular utopian who points to the world as it might be and says that we fall woefully short, and if we only tried to improve ourselves morally, we could reach this kind of moral triumphalism. No, he does seem to have a very keen understanding of the human propensity to evil. He's willing to talk about uh, the Nazi regime 
and the Soviet Union. He, after all, was a prime defender of many of the dissidents in the former Soviet Union. But you know, when I listen to Professor Dershowitz, uh, and I find myself having to think more keenly as a Christian theologian, as I, as I read uh, this lawyer who writes across uh, such a wide field of, of subjects and issues and disciplines, I also find myself wondering if it just might be that the moral context of America right now, which is, I will argue vociferously, largely the inheritance of a Judeo-Christian heritage on the part of those who did believe in God and whose theism was very central to their worldview and their understanding of human dignity and human rights, I wonder if that has created the context in which a Professor Alan Dershowitz can make his fascinating arguments at the Harvard Law School and beyond. I fear, and I say this not only as a, as a matter of anxiety, but as a matter of what I believe to be moral truth, that in a purely secular society, it would be virtually impossible for Alan Dershowitz to make the arguments for secular morality that he so bravely intends to put forth. At the end of the day, I'm certainly not convinced about the possibility of any adequate secular morality. You know, I honestly believe that it's important, as Professor Dershowitz pointed out, that we be honest to say that that does not mean that secular people are necessarily immoral. It doesn't mean that secular people operating out of a secular worldview are uh, incapable of serious moral reasoning, nor even of often arriving at the right moral understanding. For that, we should be very deeply thankful. But as Christians, we have to step back and say, you know, we do have a theological understanding of that, a theological argument for that, that goes back to the image of God and the fact that the human being, in, in spite of any claims and pretensions to secularism, continues to think with a knowledge we cannot not know. Professor Dershowitz makes me think more rigorously and more honestly as a Christian theologian. He makes me speak, I think, more honestly and carefully about the secular alternative. I'm quite certain that we did not convince each other to change our mind on an issue of such basic significance. But you know, there is moral and intellectual gain in having a conversation that makes us think more carefully in order that we will think and speak more honestly. And that's the kind of conversation that's worth having any day. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Alan Dershowitz, for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Before signing off, I want to invite you to the upcoming D3 Youth Conference being held on the campus of Southern Seminary this summer, June 27 through 30. Designed to develop students' understanding of leadership, worldview, and missions, D3 will be a summer experience full of learning and growing opportunities for high school students serious about following Christ. I'm excited to have Eric Bancroft and Army Major Jeff Struker joining me to speak, as well as musical guests Flame and the Hoffmans. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.